Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. You gotta love the bass line. I know that wasn't a very professional introduction, but what the hell. Hey everybody, welcome to the Pack Filler Interviews. You might have noticed the theme is different. You might have noticed the entire feel of things are different. You know, a while ago we made this decision to to switch the Pack Filler Interviews to its own, basically its own show within itself. Yes, I've always been doing these interviews since the, the show began in earnest, God, a long time ago. But as you notice, the show's kind of evolved in different ways. We've got the people involved in the pack filler. We've got those specific shows. And we've got also a lot of really cool people I have the opportunity to talk to. A lot of my heroes, a lot of a lot of incredibly knowledgeable people within the sport and within the lifestyle. And so we separated these things a little bit out. And hence, you have what you are listening to right now, the pack filler interviews. New trend started a couple weeks ago with the one and only Michael Morkoff. And today... We have the opportunity to talk to somebody who understands the great importance of the history of the sport of cycling. I know, it's always better in my old days. And you always want to wonder why so many older cyclists tend to say those things. Well, you know what? There were some great things that have happened within this sport. Some great personalities that come through this sport throughout the years. And I think to not know of them at least a little bit is not truly embracing the two-wheeled lifestyle. I know, a little heavy, right? But Chris Sidwells is a guy who understands the history of the sport. If you don't know who Tom Simpson was, you're going to want to know sometime. And Chris, I guess we could say, had a pretty first-hand experience of people such as Tom Simpson. I don't want to give too much away. But it was a great conversation to be able to talk to Chris 
Um, he, he also hosts his own podcast through our friends over with the Bellocast. Uh, you have an opportunity to listen to those things. If you get a chance to listen to those shows, they're great shows. Um, everybody over the Bellocast are, are, are fun people, and I, I usually don't promote a whole lot of other podcasts, but uh, that's a pretty good one. So, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, I'm going to give you the one and only Chris Sidwell's on the Packfiller Interviews. All right, everybody. Today's guest is a freelance writer, storyteller, podcast host, and author of, get this, 21 books about just about every aspect of the sport of cycling. His work has been in just about every prominent cycling publication, and his historical knowledge and perspective of the sport are a truly special treat for this podcast. So let's welcome to the show, Mr. Chris Sidwells. How are you, sir? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me on. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, first of all, I know that my introduction probably didn't do justice to your work and experience. Um, so if there were, if, if I were to ask you to give an introduction of your work yourself and your career, not to put you on the spot, but a little bit of a brag opportunity, what would that be? Um, well, I, I've, I've been uh, a cycling writer for about 17 years now, and, and it's now 23 books. I've, I've knocked two out this year. Wow. Um, and I... I've, I've written on every aspect, like you said. Uh, I've been on all the races, uh, I, and also I grew up in cycling. Uh, it's not been what I've done all my life, but um, but uh, in, you know, um, I just feel like I have a feel for the sport. Uh, I've got a way of telling stories. I think I'm a storyteller. Um, to, to, I try to tell uh, stories of cycling in the simplest way, in the most understandable way. Paint pictures with words try not to complicate things and um and i just love the sport i love riding my bike i still i've been really riding a bike for how many years and uh i i just love the feeling of it jean bobet the great writer french writer brother of louise on bobet three yeah. times tour of france winner uh said that the the feeling of cycling is voluptuous it, it's such a win it's like velvet it's the pe- <laughs> act of pedaling is like velvet and yeah I do. I, I mean, I'm just. I've just got uh, the the microbe. They say in Belgium you've been. You've got a microbe. So I must have been vaccinated with a with a, a bike spoke. <laughs> so I and you have already touched base on it. I always like to start these interviews with a little bit of perspective, kind of gain an insight into how cycling came into everybody's life. And so um, you mentioned it. It's been a part of your life, even whether even before you necessarily were at, at what we would classify as a cycling. Cyclist, I guess, but uh, how did how did uh, how did cycling find you, or how did you find it? I, I grew up in a cycling family. Um, okay. my, both my parents were cyclists, um, and my uncle was Tom Simpson, Britain's first ever world champion. That doesn't uh, hurt. That doesn't monument. hurt. <laughs> doesn't hurt. No, I mean, I don't. I was I was I was only six when he died, um, so I don't particularly. I do I do remember him. It was very close to my mum. There were the, the very close in age um and it was just uh, it made my childhood in a um a quite nondescript north nottinghamshire south yorkshire mining village uh, a little bit special so i've always had this sort of great regard for him and and um every time that i met somebody who knew him um over the years 
uh, I did a separate interview, which is now coming a, a book that I published myself, Cycling Legends 01, Tom Simpson, yeah. um, from Eddie Merckx down to his swan years, down to his accountant, even, I even met his accountant. I couldn't put everything he told me in the book. <laughs> but now, was 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 there a pressure to become uh, involved in the competitive element of the sport, or was it always just kind of a a part of life, a recreational element? Uh, no, it's I, I um, there wasn't there wasn't pressure. No, I think that my parents didn't really want me. I mean, Tom died riding yeah. the bike, yeah. so uh, there was a reluctance. I did enjoy it. I did race, and I managed to win a few races. Uh, but I never took myself seriously. How can you? I only knew, um, you know, famous cyclists that used to come to the house, you know, which long, long after for, for many years that they did. Um, wow. And I thought, well, I'm, you know, these men of granite, I'm not like, these are kid of chewing gum. Um, <laughs> so I never really took it, took it serious. But I do love riding a bike. Sometimes I think a race is a nice ride spoiled. I, I do love riding a bike. I would go to races and think, well, that, that lane down there looks good. That road down there looks good. I'd like to cycle there. Um, but I've off and on been competitive. And I do enjoy it. I do enjoy a good bike race. There's nothing like feeling good with that when that bell goes with a lap to go. So, you know. It's the ones leading up to the bell lap that, yeah, that, that, that ruin it. Ones. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I feel that every time. How about how about your path to, to writing about about cycling and, and the sport itself? Was there a journalism background or did it just kind of come into play? No, um, I, I was a police officer for my first part oh, of wow. working life. And, um, and I wanted a change. Luckily, my wife had a really good business and uh, I, I, I could work for her for a bit. And I thought I wanted to do something else. I, I did want to write. I love expressing myself. And I only know about cycling. Um, maybe I'll write a police book one day. <laughs> but I, I knew about cycling and I knew it really well. And I thought I, I just started writing about cycling just at the right time when there was a bicycle boom, bike boom, and an interest in bike racing starting in Britain with the success in the Olympics and everything. So um, I was able to get work and uh, and and managed to keep my head above water ever since. Wow. Just to fl- to fall into, not fall into it, but just to have it come so naturally, um, you know, I'm sure the people with journalism degrees were, were quite irate about that, to, to have it be something that you're able to to grasp and, and not only to the point of past proficiency to being published and, and, and work at it as a living is, is there's got to be something natural in there. Yeah, I think I, 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 I mean, I, I put on my Twitter thing, I'm a storyteller. I think I can tell a story. I yeah. think I could, um, you know, open with an introduction, uh, tell you what I'm going to tell you and then tell the story and draw a conclusion. Um, I, and I think sometimes maybe people can overcomplicate writing. It is just communication. And if you can talk, I think you can write. Um, it's, it's painting. It's trying to paint a scene in words. Um and I think the simpler, simplest way you do that, um, it, I suppose it's the same with commentating. About you're trying to put people on the saddle in the middle of it, yeah. you know, in what happened. Um, so I, I don't know. I just feel that I, I, I suppose I've always been able to communicate. So, uh, and I, I sort of, I had a little bit of a gift for writing when I was at school. So, um, yeah, it. <laughs> It sounds beginning to say it's natural, but it, it's natural. But then you need to hone your craft. You really need to hone your craft. And, and writing for seventeen years, 
for you know with deadlines and everything you become quite uh proficient bound to be have to be have to be to make a living Absolutely. Now, now tell me about some of these uh, events and opportunities that you've had to that you've been fortunate enough to experience from the journalism aspect. Uh, some of the, I guess, if we could do a highlight reel of sorts in terms of places you've been and people you've had the fortunate ability to speak with. Um, every every country in Europe, yeah. um, and uh, I've also had some some great experiences on my own in the, a rocks book called tour climbs which was the i did i started to do my own photographs as well which which helps uh, so i was treading on photographers toes as well as journalists <laughs> and writers so now maybe i'm the most unpopular person in this um but it, I, I was taking pictures of, of all the major climbs and trying to mention everything that had be, ever been in the Tour of France, and that was a, that was a great experience because just wandering around taking photographs of the mountains and getting paid for it. Yeah. Um, and one of the chance encounters in that was was on on Mont Ventoux of all places where where my uncle died, uh, taking pictures of Mont Ventoux, and I saw a little ten year old, eleven year old. Um, riding in all pro kit and a lovely little bike and he was he was a fantastic climber you know absolutely brilliant and i could see that there was a car following him and they had british number plates um so i got talking to this guy and uh, it was hugh carthy oh my gosh the kid was hugh carthy who's <laughs> now you know a great pro yeah he's doing pretty I mean, well what a, what, a, what a meeting um so there was that like, tiny little meeting uh, predictably interviewing eddie Merckx uh, on a couple of occasions um I had a very long interview with Eddie Merckx once, which was which was profoundly sort of interesting. Um, and I, I get accused of name dropping, so no, drop away. But I have interviewed a, a, a lot of people. Um, yeah, got shouted at by Bernardino for saying something out of place. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so it, it has been, and it's been a privilege to meet these people. Um, and and I, I, to be honest, I'm probably a bit naive, but I've never met anybody I didn't like. I think cyclists, they're a special kind of person. I think you've got to be a special kind of person to just take it up. Um, and they always seem to be able to, to give a good account of themselves. And I, I've never met anybody who wasn't interesting. Um, you know, right, even now, even though the sport has become sort of for the more dewy-eyed of us, perhaps less romantic. Yeah. Um, the young ones today, and they have a feel for history as well. I think you've got to be quite bright to be a cyclist. You might not have a degree or anything like that, but you've got to be able to communicate, get on with people, and you've got to be able to work out what's happening. So you've got to be able to conceptualize. You've got to be able to work out in races and plan and have some sort of strategy. Because although, yeah, there's a team plan, you know, that gets blown to the wind straight away and you, you won't become a good pro rider unless you've got a little bit of savvy and know exactly what what to do so i've i've always found them really interesting people and um and just enjoyed it are they are most cyclists fairly willing to be able to sit down and and discuss things with you or is it a, a fine line between reluctance and you know, I, I, do you find yourself having to kind of eke stories out or do you find that most cyclists are, are more than willing to discuss themselves? Yeah, I think they do enjoy talking about themselves. Yeah. Um, it, 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 there is a practical consideration nowadays. It was easier 
10 years ago, but the, um, the growth of the PR man in pro, yeah. big pro teams has made it a lot more difficult and, and um, you know, and, and, and a lot less relaxed than it was. Um, but I've always found that they can, and, and usually can tell a good story as well. So, so yeah, uh, once you've got somebody, I, I've never really struggled to get, get people. And that, I think that was the key to getting on and getting the work. If an editor wanted an interview with somebody, I could usually find some way of, I call it blagging in, 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 in England. Uh, maybe that comes from in a policeman, perhaps I was persuasive. And, <laughs> <laughs> I just, I just assumed they would talk to me. So, you know, I, I, to name drop myself, I do remember the the one time I was fortunate to have Sean Kelly on on this podcast, and I remember prior to it. Uh, reading about Sean and how difficult and many times he was during his cycling career to to speak to to anybody, um, and I remember you know the 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 vast rumor that he was the only person ever to nod an answer in a radio interview. Um, and I remember being extremely nervous before the call itself. And Sean was absolutely the opposite of what I would have expected. Maybe it's because of retirement as, as he's relaxed a little bit more, but uh, people are always really willing to talk about themselves. Yes. Well, especially as you said, after retirement, yeah. and there is times, there are times not to ask. I mean, it's no, so the big races, yeah, uh, the Tour of France and that, you are not going to get any revelations from anybody because they're, they're tight in that bubble. And, and, and it's almost pointless trying because you're just going to upset people. Yeah. So you've got to use your tactics as well. Um, it, 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 it needs to be at training camps or, or, on, or on their terms, um, really. And you, you, you are right. Once they're retired, that's a lot. Yeah, yeah. So your, your writing covers multiple generations of the sport, and as cycling fanatics, we all tend to drift towards a particular period of our of our real the real cycling. We you know that that's when it was real, and so you know my for example, my son is a gigantic he's fanatic now, and he sees his current time. You know, especially the Peter Sagan type of this this generation. That's I can't believe I'm going to say that this might be on the out. Um, as as real cycling, and I I look back at the Le Monde, you know, Sean Kelly, Stephen Rochiers as as real cycling. Um, what what would you say in in your in your experience would you classify as I guess what we would call the golden era of of cycling, and what makes I, it so special? Yeah, I I um I think that I, I don't like to put any era above another era because they've all got their problems there's a lot more pressure now um yeah. there's a lot more pressure and perhaps the riders don't enjoy it as much um and because of my contact through people for, with, with tom simpson of course the 60s are, yeah. are going to be and i i'm the only kid who I sort of grew up with people talking about jack Concatil and eddie Merckx, not footballers not soccer players um so so though that era has a that has the spell for me. Uh, I'm a great admirer of Eddie Merckx of the 70s as well, and Felice Gimondi. Um, that seemed to be um, a beautiful time. I, I wished also Tom, I'm obviously wished he was, he was alive and he'd lived a long life, but if he could have gone into the 70s, that would have been incredible. But I'm not going to say that era was better. It's changed. I mean, the 50s are interesting. The 40s for British cycling, when it was, when it was how working people got about people joined cycling clubs and didn't necessarily race it was a social thing as well 
uh, and going back in our own history, the bicycle had a, a political side to it as well. The National Clarion Movement was to get the idea of socialism around the country. Um, so the all, I can all say, you know, that would be nice to be in that. I think that the, the bit of the camaraderie has gone from the sport now because it's, it's so intense. I mean, it's big money. Big money comes big pressure. Um, riders live in teams and bubbles. They don't communicate as much in the old days when they used to do the criteriums uh, they travel around like a band of young men traveling around Europe, um, making. And I've got, I've got, I've got old guys who said one day, you know, say to each other, "Imagine we get paid for this," you know. <laughs> um, it was, it was much more of an adventure in those days. Um, but, but they're all valid. They're all, 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 it's still racing stuff, fascinating today. Do you think it's fair to compare the riders of the past to those of today, or has the sport just become so completely different throughout the generations? I think there are because the uh, I think the talent pool is deeper now because there's so many different nationalities. Um, it was it was a French and it was a yeah. European sport before. Um, I don't think tactics changed too much. I think the you know the the wind's still there, the mountains are still there, um, so yeah, I I I don't think it's fair to compare from generations. No, I mean you, you everybody. Uh, I, I mean I, I say Eddie Merckx is the greatest yet, but you're not gonna get. Nobody needs to ride everything. Yeah. Nobody's going to ride everything. You couldn't do it because every, each race is so intense, and you have to absolutely peak for it now, and the competition's so tight. Um, gosh, I'm just thinking about all these writers, and my and my history and my brain is just dancing mm-hmm. here. But um, are there are there any particular writers that you think are missed out, not missed out, but were were left out of of some of the historical notes? When we think of the greatest of all time, everybody immediately jumps to somebody such as Merckx, um, and and obviously well earned. But um, are there are there writers that you've in your research and your writing that have been like oh my gosh these per- this this was an absolute star that that seemed to have been left out for some reason or another? I don't think that we uh, and perhaps it's because of his nature. I don't think we have an intimate book about Miguel Indurain. You know, it, yeah. it, 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 I would love to write that, um, but it would have to be somebody that I mean, if you're writing biographies. I think you have to have the person complete cooperation. Um, so, so Miguel Andrain, yeah, um, that's a mystery uh, for many reasons. Uh, yeah. it, 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 he just seems to be a mystery to me, and I think that uh, it would be lovely to do some sort of collaboration with him. But it is. I wonder why that is. Is do you think it's just his his personality style, or or you know, heaven forbid, there's something to hide or something like that. I, I have no idea. Yeah. You wouldn't know until you spoke. I mean, you, you, you um, I don't think he, I, don't, I think he's one person that doesn't really like talking about himself. Well, yeah. And with his accomplishments, you're right. That would be an incredible story. Um, who do, who do you think are some current writers that we will be speaking about fondly in, in 20 plus years? Um, and what is it that might make them so? For example, is it the wins or is it the personality or the, the individual achievements or something like that? Who are some writers that you think are, are going to be entering those those history books? Uh, Peter Sagan for uh, for having a personality that's that's outside of any team. Um, Julian Alaphilippe now. I mean, yeah. I think 
I mean, he he, he, he divides people actually, because uh, um, he's a bit he's a bit cheeky. But <laughs> I just love the way he races, and I love the way he um, rips up the tactics and 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 rips up. It, it it's a different time now in that particularly stage races, particularly Grand Tours. To me, it seems that the overall tactic of a Grand Tour is not losing it. Yeah, absolutely. You have to be, and, and the teams are so important in Grand Tours. You need this train, and it's all got very predictable. And if you try anything that um, that won't doesn't fit those predictable tactics of just gaining seconds when you can, and never, never, ever losing, um, you know, you try and turn the race upside down, it, it will fail. Which is why, personally. I still love the monuments, the classics, because yeah. there isn't a script to them, and you, you, there's a there's a point at what you don't not lose a classic. There's a point where you have to step out and win a classic, and consequently, I think the classics riders are, are more interesting as well, because they're more adaptable, they're more adaptable and tactics wise, and it, it's far more interesting racing for me. And I also find that the, the the classics are far more adaptable for new fans to the sport. The race starts here. The first person across the line is the one who wins. With with new riders, it's it, to understand the concept of stage racing alone is monumental. Yeah. What, yeah no, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a single day race fan. I like yeah. it. What, who do you think is associated with that tactic shift or in within stage racing? I mean, do we do we link it to something with Sky and the the what are the gains, marginal gains, or do we go back to the the U.S. Postal Lance Armstrong dominant years, things like that, or or when do you think that shift occurred? I think the, the U.S. Postal, yeah, I mean that tactic. Um, uh, that's when there's a big change because, um, as Joanne Brunil said, there was a, it was a completely different way of doing Grand Tours in that you train for it and you train over every bit of course you could. And um, you know, aside of all the other skullduggery that was going on, it was a new template of how how to win and and buying the best riders to have a, a lead out train and then Lance would do the coup de grace at the end yeah. of it, and and that's how effectively um and then sky refined it by you using things like this vam vertical ascended meters you know where you know how much power you, you they know um what the winners of stage races will do on the climbs what what so that then they know which power output to then train for this is how they did it with bradley wiggins yeah they, they worked out what he needed to reach uh, power to weight for all the climbs to be there and then and then do it in the time trials so that has become you can put uh, a stage race into a computer on the spreadsheet and say how how it should be won and all the team things um you know there's a list of things you need to do you just can't put a classic in a computer you can't put a classic on a spreadsheet because there's so many different things and the riders are going to use so many different tactics so um that's that's the big change i think it was us postal changed it um, Sky certainly changed it. That's a great way to think about it. You can't put a classic into a computer. That's I, no. that's a, a perspective of it that makes. Com- why wasn't that spoken up before? That's a perfect way to refer to it. So here in the here in the United States, cycling fans tend to obviously be cyclists. Um, where we have American uh, football fans who might never have stepped foot on a football field their entire lives. It was just ingrained within them. 
Um, and I think that probably obviously has to do with a large part of the popularity of the sport here versus versus Europe. Um, but do you what do you think is in in Europe? Are, is that the case where mo- most people don't necessarily have a cycling background? And are they is they be, just grow up becoming fans and never really, truly become cyclists themselves? I think in Europe that that happened uh, in mainland Europe. I think in the UK uh, that is happening now. People quite like cycling; they've, they've been open to it. Um, I mean, one attractive thing about cycling—you don't necessarily have to know the, understand the tactics, particularly in the saving grace of stage yeah. races. What a backdrop it's played on! You know, people just watch it for the beautiful. Uh, I was watching the Giro today. I mean, some fantastic uh, mountain shots. In the UK, it did tend to be cyclists. You you were a cyclist, so you were a fan of the sport. Um, but in Europe, you grew up, in particular Belgium, there was a race in your village every year, a professional race, uh, and you knew about it, and it was in the papers, and you were exposed to it, and people, people spoke about it um, without ever having taken part in a race. And it was there were social affairs as well. I mean, uh, in Belgium still, the Tour of Flanders, it, what is the one bike race some people will go to every year in their Sunday best, in their, uh, you know, smart and socialised. So, yeah, it, it was part of the society, part of the fabric uh, of society in Europe because cycling is, is a, you don't go to a stadium, it comes to you. It comes through your village, it comes through your town. And that's how they were exposed to it in Europe. Wow. Yeah. I wish we had those opportunities. And and for me, I keep complaining about the fact that this darn pandemic stopped me from seeing my first tour of Flanders. So I'm, mm. I'm still quite bitter about that one. But um, <laughs> so ch- changes in the sports over the years, um, if, if you had to, to associate some of the largest um, advancements, I guess we could say, either good or, or bad within the sport itself, if, if you were to, to try and grab one specific item. Um, for example, if, if it, within the evolve, evolution of the bicycle itself, if you had to say there was one thing that really was one of the more monumental shifts in the evolution of the bicycle, what would you say that would be? Well, it's, it's aerodynamics, isn't it? It was, yeah. it was the realization that, that on the flat, um, it, you know, you, you, you um, resistance, uh, the air resistance goes up exponentially to the speed compared to the speed. And if you could do something about that, um, so Francesco Mosa and uh, Assos and, and, and all those guys at that time yeah. made that big discovery. And um, we uh, and now skin suits and where panels are, I mean, it is... It, 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 uh, um, and also then you've got the physical side where power meters, you know, they've actually quantified training doses, which before, I mean, like it, it is now a science. I mean, before it was a bit of alchemy. It was a bit of um, certain trainers had an innate feeling for for what is happening now. and But they kept that to themselves. There was no way you could really learn it. And then you've got this. That's why you've got these coaches that were really famous, you know, that, that uh, that, that could could turn out champions because they had a feel for what we know now in science and the whole thing can be quantified now so power meters made a huge difference to training and preparation and that's why training is seen now as more effective than racing before professional cyclists everybody was race yourself fit because you don't know you can't train the same as a race you you you, you raced rest rest race and that's how you got fit and it was a bit hit and miss now 
with a power meter, you can uh, use these training doses to arrive at peak form on a particular day. So that was a big game changer. Um, but it, yes, yeah, it's, it's aerodynamics and uh, and although some time trial bikes now crikey, yeah, they don't look very good. <laughs> <laughs> How about the the advancements such as? Heaven forbid, I know this is always a touchy subject, dealing with race radios and, and uh, directors being able to speak directly to the riders and almost control them more than what we saw in generations past. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that's took a little bit of the individual um, uh, ability to read a race out. But still, it's still down to the guys in the race. The director can't always see it. And very often, many teams have a... Um, a, a team captain that's also got a bit of radio contribution as well. So, you know, they, they, they to make decisions on the road. Um, I do like race radios because there's, there's a, for a safety aspect. I mean, there is advancements. We can't be against everything. Um, it, it's, it, it's, it, there's a lot more road furniture and villages that, and, and where, where, where a manager can say, look, there's, there's a tight bit coming here. There's, there's, there's road furniture around about. So I think the safety aspect in the fields are bigger than, than um, they're a good thing. Um, it makes an interesting race when they haven't got race, race radios, but you still probably get the same result. I've, the same people come to the top. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, whether or not it's 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 communicated or not. I mean, I, 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 I have a, a lot of, I guess we would call, Died in the wool traditionalists that that do listen to this show and would probably be very much on the side against race radios. Heck, they're probably still you know we we get into the rim versus disc brakes discussion quite a bit even here, and um, you know being that the visual that that these these riders are being controlled such as marionettes or puppets or things like that when, but in all actuality, yeah, if if the rider's strong enough to reach the top of the hill, they're going to reach the top of the hill whether it's by somebody yelling in your ear or not. Yes, exactly. And I think you like a creative rider like um, Julian Alaphilippe, you, whatever his director of sportive says, he's still going to go with what his gut feeling is. And that, that's why he's so exciting. So, yeah, I suppose we do hype back for that kind of rider. And that kind of rider will always turn things upside down. And I, I do, do think the guys know this. I, and, and I know sometimes it's frustrating for, for managers that they, they often don't listen and take their earplug. <laughs> you yeah. know, we've seen that. Yeah. I think, was it Mads Pedersen did it uh, in a race recently? Yeah. Took, you know, I'm not listening. If only there was a manager who could have told Julian Alaphilippe to not necessarily celebrate until he was past the line recently. But, you know, that's, is it too or soon? Or run into a motorbike. Or run into, oh, man. And that was, he was speaking through his race radio. That 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 was well, the problem yeah, with that. <laughs> there are there are pluses. I mean, I, I, although I say, yes, there's a safety aspect, and I don't want to appear to be against advances, Um I don't bad if they didn't have them. I think we'd still do the same results. Um, I think they're worth it for a, for a safety aspect, and they're just another layer. Um, can make it interesting for uh, us watching as well when you see what director sportive are shouting at the, at the riders. <laughs> I do love the the in car f- footage. That's always yeah. an, an, an exciting one, especially when things go incredibly well or incredibly poorly. Just to see the reactions from that. Yes, those are those are always a fun hit behind the scenes type of an element. 
So if you were to choose uh, a year for the best ever version of, of the following races, uh, which, which would you choose? So um, I'm going to throw some races at you and see if you can you choose your. And this this is personal opinion. You don't have to be factual here if you want to. Um, if if I were to ask you to categorize the best uh, t- version of the Tour de France that has happened in in your experiences. Oh, um, yeah. No pressure. Yeah, best Tour de France. <laughs> um, uh, 1969 for Merckx's. Uh, just virtuoso performance. Um, it's frightening as well that that uh, I mean he won by nearly twenty minutes in yeah. in a modern ish race. You know, I mean it was it was frightening to think that how good it had been if he hadn't have crashed in that track meeting afterwards. This is what he told me. He said that because I I always ask naive questions. I said, "What's it like being Eddie Merckx? You know, why are you? How are you so good?" Yeah, he said it was just strong. Says until I until he crashed in 1969, he said I didn't know what they were talking about when they said suffering. Really? I didn't I pressed on the pedals? I went. I didn't understand what they were saying, and I asked him about that day uh, on the tourmalet when he attacked, and he t- he already was eight minutes in front, and uh, he took another eight minutes, and I said why did you do it? He said because I could. He said also a teammate pissed me off as well. A teammate had told him that he was going to move to another team. So, and he wanted to lead over the tournament and I told him, no, I want to do it. And that was it. He, he, he went. Um, and then he said that afterwards, uh, after the crash of Bois at the track meeting where he damaged his back, um, the reason he, he suffered, he came back without doing the proper physiotherapy because he wanted to get back racing. And then he had pain always on his bike after that. Uh, so what would he have wow. been if, <laughs> if, um, if that hadn't have happened? So I think that, that Tour of France, I think uh, the the Le Monde, you know, ones, the eighty five and eight, well eighty six was yeah. fascinating. It was fascinating for, I think, all the way through that race, um, Bernardino was trying to telegraph the fact that he could have won it. Yeah, the way he used it, the way he attacked early on that stage, which he, he eventually, the, the, was the stage that Le Monde took over on, but he was actually punching the air at fans that were shouting shouting for him. You know, I he was saying I could still win. I could have still won this, and that was that was great. And that, I mean, for for absolute balls. I mean, yeah, he was some bike rider. Have you had a chance to speak with Bernard? A little bit, uh, not not a big interview, but we have done a couple of things. Yes, yes. Um, and uh, I met him the first time was was before I was doing this at the. Uh, memorial when he was put in at Tom Simpson's memorial on the Vontu and um, he, he he took us he was putting some flowers on for ASO for the Tour of France organizer it was a stage of the Tour of France and uh, somebody introduced us and uh, and he says um, he thought it was terrible that people came and littered it you know they left tributes yeah. of, of this, the, the fact that they've been there and he called it litter and crap or what they put all this guy it's, it's disrespectful and I said well no it's not um, it's a mark that they've been here and they're saying I've been here and I've done this and apparently he's not used to anybody disagreeing with him <laughs> because he was lost for words and, just went, and went off in a huff and somebody said doesn't like being told no <laughs> but I have spoken to him uh, a couple of times since particularly when he came across to England when the um, 
the Tour de France was here in 2014. I, I just imagine that being a difficult conversation. Just, I don't know why. He just he seems of all the people very, very, as you say, you know, it's, it's his way or, or no other way. So I, yeah. I just imagine yeah, he, that would be it. He was, um, he, he was, and apparently he was angry as a rider most of the time. Yeah. Um, I remember Barry Holman, the British cyclist who, who was older than Eno, but Barry actually raced with um, Ongetil, Eno, and Merck. Oh my so, God. Merckx and Eno, so three of the five time winners of the Tour of France. And he said he, he first met him when he was like 18 and he was getting rides in the criteriums in Brittany. And he said it was just like this angry beast. He was just constantly angry and attacking. And the, the, you know, the pros had to rough him over in the end to, to, to beat him. <laughs> Okay, continuing with your favorite versions or best ever's, how about a Paris Roubaix? Ah, oh, um, now we're talking classics. Yeah, no, it's hard, really hard to pick to pick one, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Andre Schmel's victory in the rain. That was that was, that was fantastic. Um, Moseo after his um, knee injury. Um, you know, I don't. I'm never. I never on any, with any of these victories. I'll pick. There's no value judgment about what went on and how they were prepared or whatever. It's it's just my feeling for a great race. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's yeah. Um, just thinking of Roubaix. Yeah. Anyway, I, I never. I never. I, I never saw on television Roger Navalny winning. So of course we didn't get television, and that, that would have been lovely to see. Yeah. Um, but. Yeah, I think Schmill's reign, it was just how how they, how anybody stayed upright that day, I don't, I don't understand. They're hard enough to ride over those cobbles without them being wet. Yeah, yeah. Um, is there, how about a Flanders? I guess before I finish this 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 idea, how about a, how about a Tour of Flanders? Um, I never saw it. I'm going for my, my favourite Tour of Flanders is bound to be the one that Tom Simpson won because he was 23. It was the first time he'd ever ridden the race. People don't do that. Everybody in the world tells you that you, you have to have ridden it. I, I did an interview with Peter Van Bertigan once on the bike, and he's going, oh, you see where the steam comes out, the cooling towers there? If it's going east, you have to be on this side of the road for the Clavermont. And yes, that, and <laughs> Tom had never seen it. Uh, and he just went and won it against Belgian opposition. I don't know how he did it. It was, it was, it was amazing. But... Um, Later Flanders is, is yeah, I can't. I, I, it, it's so difficult to pick um, time. So I'm going to go for 1961. I didn't see it. I was one, <laughs> so but I'm going for it because because he won it, and I just don't know how he won that. I can only imagine writing the the book about Tom as an experience must have been. Um, both a, a blessing and a curse in the same breath that having to it, was it an emotional journey to, going through that entire as as opposed to the other books that you've written was this one obviously much more personal yeah i mean obviously i'm i'm uh, i'm perhaps the best person and worst person to write about him because i want people to like him yeah. and i do think he was likable and i get the reaction from everybody who knew him that he was incredibly likable I, the big feeling I had at the end of it was, yeah, you wrote this book and you, you presented him, I think, fairly and everything. But I was, would have, I really felt sort of hollowness that I would love to have known him. I think we'd have got on like household. Um, had a great sense of humour. 
I'm just quite amazed that a kid from from a colliery coal mining village went and did what he did. And the thing that I came across that uh, is just how talented he was as a cyclist. Because um, you know, you, you, at 16 he hardly wouldn't race. By 18 he'd got a bronze medal in the Olympics. Or, but what, two days past his 19th birthday. Um, two years later. He's in France, turned professional, comes fourth in the World Professional Road Race Championships, 21 years old. Wow. And yeah. he never really got the, the team support. That's one thing I found out. He, the, the French teams didn't want a, an English leader. The riders didn't really back him. So although the Tour of France, is a, 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 you know, he, he never was able to perform in Tour of France because he was doing it all himself, really. So I just tried to get across how good he was. And uh, I think it's not, I don't think people appreciate just how good he was. And when you get a guy like Rick Van Louis, who's never got a good word from most other cyclists, saying he was absolute class, yeah. and you could not rule him out, couldn't rule Tom out of any race. Um, you know, and if he'd have been Belgian or French, he'd have won twice as much as he did. Wow. Wow. So gear shift. Talk to me about, about your cycling life. Um, first of all, how many bikes are in the house and um, how often are you uh, straddling a top tube and, and going out and riding? Um, I've only got two bikes in the house and um, I, when I, was, when I was busy and traveling, I mean, I was on a, as a journalist, you're on a plane every week somewhere yeah. um, covering cycling. I was riding less and less. So I started doing a bit of running otherwise I, um, I wouldn't, I lost sight of my feet, you know, my stomach was getting so big. <laughs> uh, so, I, you know, I had to keep myself in shape. Um, and since I've done more writing of books over the last couple of three years, and um, and particularly COVID, I've been able to ride my bike a bit, which I, I just love. I mean, it's still, still the best thing. I still come back from a bike ride smiling. Yeah. Um, and... I, I just, I don't know what it is about it. I just love it. And I tend to ride on my own, um, not antisocial. Well, I think cycling club people are brilliant and, uh, and so my best. Um, something an old pro told me that he, he had his sons and his, his daughter, his daughter and his sons introduced them to cycling and wanted them to join cycling clubs. And he says, not because I mean, one of them became national champion, Britain, Joey Walker. And um, it, he said that I wanted them to make friends in cycling because your cycling friends stay friends forever. That's a great way to put it. Also, God, you, you're, you're good with it. You you should be a writer. You should you should put these things down on paper. That's a great perspective. I'm I'm very much the same way. I do prefer to uh, to ride by myself most of the time. But uh, there are, as, as you say, there are a core group of people who I've been involved with since the beginning who are still. Uh, whether yeah. we're whether we ride together or not, we're still in constant communication and always talking. And, and it might not be a discussion about cycling, but the, you're right. There are friends that you make for life. Yeah, not, definitely. Not to overly romanticize it, but that's that's a great way to put put it. It's a, right, it's, it's a romantic sport. I mean, yeah, all of those hard sides. And I, I don't. I sometimes when the kids take it up, they get a bit romantic. Oh, I'm going to be a pro, and I think. Oh, being a professional cyclist is a strange thing and yeah. it's not for everybody it is and particularly now and that's why a lot of them are um retiring quite young when you think about it there it's a strange life and and almost going too far particularly grand tour riders with the weight 
uh, you know, they're mostly hungry. Yeah. Before, bike riders from the 60s and 70s would eat everything because they thought they were furnaces. But now, <laughs> eating with a eating lunch with a pro rider grand tour contender is like eating with a supermodel. <laughs> I don't know how you know. Would you like? Oh no, I had a piece of toast this morning. Yeah. Um, and I don't know how they do it. And, it, and it's become self-selective in that they've got to have these amazing physiologies that, uh, that, that, that that can survive on almost nothing. And that's, you know, you worry about their health. It's a, it's a, a really strange half-world um, professional cycling with a, a, a lot of things. And you have to absolutely live for cycling, which is why they're probably more interesting after they've retired. Yeah, yeah. And to walk... Because they other things into the life and to walk away from that lifestyle has got to be a, a gigantic shift to to have you know to be where you were or what you were doing and that immediately Marco Pantani comes to mind and that is obviously an extreme case but um, to 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 have to adjust from that lifestyle where everything is so focused and and regimented and and then to just go okay now what yeah, it's not it's not easy, and there is. I mean, now that cycling is much bigger, they the there um there are jobs. Yeah, you know, in it, and you move into jobs or you set up your own business, and the, the cyclists have got more money, which helps. But when you get to people talking uh, in the eighties, I I co-wrote Alan Piper, the Australian's autobiography of Piper's Tale. Who's found an was, incredible job? He's doing a, a pretty darn good work with his current line of work. He's, he's amazing. He's done fantastic, you know, uh, winning the Tour of France now and the number one team in the world. Mm-hmm. And that's his analytical approach. I mean, David Brailsford talks about marginal gains. All cyclists were marginal gainers. All of them. They've always been used whatever, sometimes things they shouldn't use, uh, to gain an advantage. And But, but, but uh, Alan was doing that right from the start of being the team manager. But he said, I mean, the void... Of, of of being faced without uh, without without change, I think Mark Cavendish has had a little bit of difficulty coming to terms with with what's going to happen after cycling. I mean, he's yeah. going to be fine. He's going to make a success with the media and everything. But he loves his bike and he loves racing, and and that's a powerful thing to give up. And I think he's struggling a little bit with with giving that up. Yeah, I've I've talked to some other riders uh, who have left the professional peloton because of the the lifestyle and how strict and how difficult it is. For example, uh, uh, Peter Stetna, who has who has moved to this alternative calendar of gravel racing and things like that. Um, and a, as you said, it's it's a very difficult life to lead. Yeah, I don't I don't think you I think young people should appreciate need to appreciate that, and I think it's up to teams and coaches to tell them. Um, not, don't, don't be starry-eyed because it's yeah. it's a, a very, very... It's not for everybody. Yeah. And it won't make everybody happy either. All right. Let's have some fun on the way out, if you don't mind. I always like to do these what I call rapid fire, where I just ask you... I, I'm going to throw really quick quick things at you, and you have, to, you have to come up with your response as quickly as possible. All okay. right? You ready for this? Yeah. Okay. Um, the, number one, the greatest of all time, and it cannot be Eddie Merckx. <laughs> Fausta copy. Fausta copy. Oh, great. Uh, best sprinter of all time. Uh, Mark Cavendish. Mark Cavendish. Best climber of all time. 
Oh, great, great response. Uh, most beautiful bike ever built? Bianchi. Bianchi. 1980s Bianchi with the um, the leather sleeves. You know, our Campag Super Record and the stitched leather on the handlebars. I re- as rode by Felice Gimondi, another of my heroes. I re- um, I remember those bars. Oh my gosh, I remember that. I can't believe that. I, that just popped back into my head. Uh, most, uh, your favorite race to experience in person? The Biat. Um, yeah, one of the classic, classics. Gemwebelgem, Flanders, or, or Roubaix. Okay. Uh, best interview you have ever had the ability to, to have? Eddie <laughs> um, right. Merckx was fantastic. Yeah. Um, Peter was fantastic. It was, it was, I was with, with heroes. Um I was enjoying. I used to enjoy interviewing Brad Wiggins, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> fascinating, and I usually got the Brad Wiggins that was. We'd we'd, we'd book a time, and I knew he was going to be okay and and, and relaxed. Um, we, you know, in the, we 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 were sort of friends. He's been to my house and 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 stuff. So uh, so I I, I like him because he, he also he, he can talk about other things in cycling. He's really interesting. I have to tell him police stories. Fascinated with crime and police stories. <laughs> I, I, his personality definitely comes through. Um, Several, though, that's the problem. You yeah, never yeah. know one's going to wake up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, most awkward moment as a cycling journalist? Oh, dear. Um, I can't think. What most awkward? Well, the awkward moments get getting things wrong. Um, yeah, I, I do that quite regularly. Okay. Okay. Uh, strange habit or superstition that you have, or that you even, it doesn't necessarily have to be you. It could be something in a rider that you've seen. Oh, gosh, that's going to need some thinking about. Um, I, I, I never met him, but Jack Conquerty was the most superstitious rider. Um, you know, he would do, he followed all, all the superstitions and would have a, um, a sort of soothsayer, horoscope person, consult them. You wouldn't think this, would you? Maitre Jack, the yeah. ultimate time trialist. Um, he he was convinced in 1964, well, that's why he had this bad time, and that's why he went to the rest day and had went to a party, because he, he was convinced he was going to die in the Tour of France. And I also know from somebody who knew him very well, John Stablinski, that he had a recurring nightmare. This is, this is weird. Where... And Charlie Gold, who'd beaten him, taken him apart on two particular occasions. Charlie Gold, the angel of the mountains. Yeah. And he would he had this nightmare that he would be riding with Gold. Gold would attack on a mountain and he would chase after him. And then when he looked across at him, Gold was made up of millions of raindrops. Wow. And as he looked across at him, the raindrops disappeared and then reassembled up the road like something out of Star Trek, you know, beam me up. Yeah. And then he would chase again. And he would keep doing that until he um, until he woke up and <laughs> sweated. Wow, that, that I've, I'm gonna have to go back to my my minor in psychology and tear that one apart. But yeah, that's that's. It, it would it would, uh, it would a psychological book about Jacques Cousteau would be would be very good. Yes. Oh um, my gosh. And, and his whole total approach, and then of course his life outside of cycling. I mean, that was complicated. Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh! Okay, uh, best cycling jersey of all time. You have a book on cycling jerseys. So what's the? I do. Uh, yeah, I'll go for Bianchi again. Yeah, oh god! Now I remember the return of that when when Jan Ulrich wore that Bianchi kit, yeah. and I keep hoping that um, who's uh, the Mitchelton 
squad who's switching to Bianchi's this year. I hope I wish they would just bring that jersey back. Well, there's a there's a there's a. I'll give a plug to my friend David Walters because he runs a, a women's Bianchi team in uh, in based in the UK and they're going to ride continental races next next year, um, and they've got an exact copy of it. It's, it's that, that jersey. Wonderful. Uh, worst jersey of all time. I know my version of the worst jersey, but I can't wait to hear yours. Le Groupement. That <laughs> <laughs> Robert Miller wrote for. Oh, yeah. It was, again, one of the great, one of the great quotes. Uh, um, said, How, how's the team going when he was with Le Groupement? He says, we don't have team meetings, we have seances. <laughs> When it was nearly uh, winding up, but I mean, it looked like somebody been sick on the floor. Yeah, so, that. What did that team last? About nine months, if that. I, I think it lasted about six months. Um, yeah, yeah. It, I don't know. It was some sort of cult. It was a strange thing. Cycling <laughs> has always uh, attracted these strange teams. I mean, there was a there was a team in Belgium that was sponsored by a massage parlor. Yeah. Yeah. You know, oh, the we... team presentation was interesting. <laughs> I think I've seen that photo team presentation. I think one of our regulars here, uh, Dave Martin on our on our show has a, a photo of that that he keeps in his phone book all the time. Um I was going to say Tonton Tapis, which I think was a terrible kid yeah. back in the oh, day. Oh, that was awful. Yeah. That was awful. The guy looked like he was carrying a cigar on his show. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's just that, that that was another strange team because for a while wasn't Roger Nevlamic the the um the, the team manager at Sportif. Oh my gosh, he was. I, I see. I that well, Steve, I, Stephen, Stephen Roach's brother Lawrence. Yeah. Uh, told me about this because Stephen couldn't ride the Tour or, or, or something, and he rode the Tour of France. His only time in the Tour of France, Lawrence, and he said that the, every day, De Vlaming says somebody attack. Somebody's got to attack. I need to see Tom Tom. I need to see you on the road. <laughs> he says we couldn't. You know the Tour of France. We couldn't attack. He says so. One day was a really hot stage. Uh, we're trying to get a drink, and and uh, Lamic wouldn't give us any. He says, "No, I'm not doing my job anymore because you won't do yours." <laughs> so he said, "I had to go on a tank to get a drink." <laughs> what a what a great method, you know. It's definitely going to make things turn out in the well, uh, you know. When when you're re- oh my gosh, reminds me of my old football coach back in the day. You can't drink until a specific time, and we're all collapsing on the field. God, I hated that sport. Um, <laughs> Uh, best best cycling related book that you've read and it can't be one of yours. Uh, Jean Vaubé, Tomorrow We Ride. That's that's a beautiful book. Okay. John's like John's a poet. I mean, he just um, he just gets it. Best cycling m- movie. Hmm. A Sunday in Hell. It's like uh, is that means a documentary, but A Sunday yeah. in Hell. No, that that cla- that counts for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so a little bit more personal, uh, favorite place to ride and it cannot be your hometown. No, um, I like, yeah, Tuscan is fantastic. The Alps, um, the Alps, Pyrenees, mountains. I love mountains. I mean, I do love the classics best, but you know, the mountains are the best place to ride. Um, particularly the Southern Alps around the, um, um, Restafon, Bonnet, uh, Chinda Bonnet. That, uh, is, you get so high, it's almost Himalayan. I mean, you've got that in in America, whereas you go beyond the tree line, where um, that that's that's fantastic, and also the massive Centrale in France is is, is beautiful. Um, so yeah, it's it's France and it's the it's the high Alps and the high Alps. Okay, uh, you you mentioned the the joy, the complete 
happiness of coming back from a uh, from a good long ride or something like that. Now, let's say we wanted to make that even more perfect. What would be your perfect choice for a post ride drink, a post ride beverage? Beer. Any particular one? Belgium. Belgiums. Okay. Any particular uh, uh, Belgiums? Um, you can't get it in, in the UK. There's a, there's a beer called um, Brigand. There's one called in, Inama Triple. You only have one bottle because it's really strong. Uh, but it, that would be a treat. I don't do it actually. I, I, I will, might have a beer in the evening, but I, I don't. I, I don't drink after after riding because you've got to work. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I try to ride early in the morning, otherwise I never. I never um, go. Okay, understandable. Yeah. No, I. I... I, yeah, I'm, I'm always running into that wall, but, uh, if, if your favorite, if, so let's say you were able to have that beer, what type of a food, your favorite dish of food would follow that up? Um, I like Italian food. Um, so yeah, some sort of, oh, chili, uh, chili is good. Yeah. Chili. Really? Okay. Okay. I've got to go cook one of those in a bit. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, well, that 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 concludes the the rapid fire. Thanks for those. Uh, so, tell us where uh, the listeners can find all your books and your publications and any, anything like that. Um, if you go to um, cyclinglegends.co.uk, that's my own publishing company. I've I've written the 22, 23 books for other people, and then I've um, published this uh, Tom Simpson book, which is an illustrated book. It's the first of the series of Cycling Legends Illustrated book. We, I, I sell them by going, taking it on the road and doing talks all over. We've had to stop that because of because of COVID here, the restrictions, you can't have groups of people. So I put off Cycling Legends 02 uh, until next year. But that's it, cyclinglegends.co.uk. And of course, amazon.com, amazon.co.uk, um, you can get everything else. And uh, I, you know, I get a small royalty, so anything, anything anybody buys, yeah, too small too. So, and and you've had your your opportunity with your own podcast and things like that. Uh, you know, John has been on the show several times, the Velocast, and I think you're working with him on on your own show. Uh, yeah, I, 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 this is a new thing for me, and it's come. It came at the right time. Uh, I was always 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 the written word, and now I can see the podcast one of the future uh, i've also recently and i can't say too much about it had a chance to do some television presenting really which is very yeah so do documentaries um which i also have enjoyed um and that will be they'll start coming out um next next year i think or, or towards the end of this year um so yeah i do i do really enjoy and i enjoy the podcasting so it's that's velocast.cc and um you you're familiar with John, and I really enjoy it. I think John's fantastic. We do a, we do a show where there's me and him talk, um, but we haven't done any of those with this massive racing period. And uh, 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 I I tend to do I do interviews for him uh, for the podcast, and I think tomorrow they'll be having Magnus Backstead um, oh, wow. interview because there's no Paris Roubaix, so I got Maggie to give me tell me how he's he's telling the re, the listeners. Uh, to win one, uh, oh. to win Paris Roubaix. Okay, that'll be that'll be a good listen. I yeah. I, I look forward to that. So, um, well, as as you mentioned, in terms of the history of the sport and the ability to tell the stories that I think are are so critical 
for for cycling fans and and for people involved in the sport is such is such an important element. I guess you know maybe it's just those of us who are still holding on to our our dream years or or whatever it might be. But um, the, this this sport is so drenched in history, and to have um, someone such as yourself uh, to be able to to recall the stories and tell the stories is is such a blessing and i i know it sounds like i'm kissing up here but 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 thank you for your work and and thank you for your your time here on the show today it was i just to be able to experience my just through reading your book and your writings about tom himself uh are, are so much more than i ever knew and so it's it's been an appreciative to have people like you telling these stories thank you well thank you for talking to me and thank you for the opportunity to, to speak to um you you're listeners absolutely does it make you in the very least want to dive a little bit into the history or does it make you if you are already into the history want to keep diving a little deeper or just sit back and remember some of the things the great moments that have happened throughout the years in the sport so many things in cycling i'm not just talking road cycling i'm talking all types of two-wheeled adventures somebody did it first i think somebody said somewhere along the line the first bicycle was invented on a monday the second bicycle was invented on a wednesday and on thursday i guarantee you was the first bike race it's been happening for a long time and you're constantly hearing about who did this and what year and how many times has this race been won and it might get mind-numbing at sometimes but just start with a little sliver Start with a little bit of an intro into the history of things that have happened throughout this this wonderful sport in all the years, and you're going to find yourself going down the rabbit hole in a great way. There are a lot of books written by Chris out there that you can read up and just get an idea of what's going on. Or you can just take little samples here and there, all right? that right? I'm off my soapbox here. But it was so much fun talking to that guy. I, could have, I told him in an email later on that I probably could have gone for weeks just picking his brain about little things or just, I don't know, getting reassurance that I'm not completely full of it, that I'm not as obsessed as I might think I am sometimes when I start talking to people about bike racing. My wife's eyes tend to glaze over if I get going too far. And that's why I guess that's why I have a microphone in my basement and I talk to you. It's 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 a beautiful thing. And I know I'm getting all sentimental because it's snowy outside and the cycling season's coming to an end and there's no cyclocross. So what better to do than just go back and watch some old races, right? Yeah. Hey, if you like what you hear, these pack filler interviews, we're going to hopefully keep them coming consistently. I've been, as I said at the onset of the show, I've been talking to people on this podcast for a long time and we've just, we haven't changed anything. We've just kind of shifted the podcasts that deal with interviews are going to be released on their own. And, of course, all of my idiot friends and everybody involved in the pack filler, we're going to still be coming at you once a week on the regular basis. So all I ask in return is that you like the show, you tell your friends, and and you communicate with us if you want to, right? Hey, I guess that's not too much. Well, might be. We're lazy kids these days, right? What the hell are you going to do? And if you are downloading uh, this show from one of our older formats, uh, first of all, congratulations on finding this one. Uh, the the show itself is is we shifted over to a new uh, podcast host with Podbean, and if you go over there to Podbean.com, or if you just go to our website or iTunes, nothing's going to change on iTunes. Some of you have been going to our old server to find the the downloads, and that's 
why I'm getting communication in terms of why they can't find the new episodes. I guess I'm talking to the people who have found the new episodes, and I don't really know why I even started this conversation in the first place. First place. I guess with that, I'm going to just say, whoops, catch you next time on the Pack Miller Interviews. <laughs>